to Movie Movie. I am uh, one of your hosts, Garrett Smith. And I am your other host, Dan Scully. And uh, we are here to talk movies, as we always do every week. We talk movie movies. Movie and, uh, movies. Dan, what's a movie movie? A movie movie is a movie that knows that it's a movie, and it entertains being a movie, because the medium is what we're celebrating. It is a, a movie that uses the medium to its fullest potential. I know you're laughing, but it's, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the only way to say it. It's a movie that uses the medium to its fullest potential, a movie that arguably exists best in that format. Yes. And even even though we've done adaptations before, yes. we're talking about movies that when you sit down, it is a complete experience that uses every, uh, every use of your senses that can be used by a movie. Yes. Uh, and w- this episode is going to be a little different than some of the other ones we've done because this is uh, w- we're doing a movie today that uh, Dan had never seen before, and I'm uh, ashamed of that fact. And I had only seen once, probably six or seven years ago, so I didn't have vivid memories of it, but I knew I liked it. Most of the uh, movies that we've done, all of them, we've seen ten times, ten eleven times. Exactly. times. So you know, this so is one that I've have, seen once. That's the thing. Normally, we already come in with sort of a a critical eye that we've we've set to the movie mm. uh, and, and some ideas about what we want to say about it. So this time we're going to discover that together as we as we talk about Martin Scorsese's 1976 film Taxi Driver. Oh man, this uh, movie was fucking awesome. I, it was great. Uh, it it is so understandable that it it holds up. Uh, it, it's always touted as one of his best. It's one of the best of uh, all time. And just one of the best. Yeah, yeah. Everybody loves it. It's truly yeah. a universally loved movie, yeah. which and it's is remembered. It's respected. Interesting if you think about it what really this movie is. is. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people that that will say great things about Taxi Driver will see a movie that's a little on the fringe today and be like, nah, I don't know. Yeah. And they square up about it and like this this to, to borrow a term from the movie. This is not a square movie at all. No. It is hip, but it's. Uh, <laughs> It's definitely, uh, you wouldn't think that this is something that's universally palatable, but it's not only universally palatable, it is almost universally loved. Yeah. And respected. And yes. It's influential. It's everything. Uh, and I, I don't know. Where do you want to start with this? What what well, struck you about we this? We can drop drop a couple facts. Um, right. It is Academy Award nominated. Yes, so it was loved immediately. Nominated for four Academy Awards. Four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Um, won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, yep. which uh, it's Pulp Fiction did that. Yes. Um, whole bunch of wind that shakes the barley. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the other one? Oh, I think Holy Motors did it too, which oh, is just cool. fucking awesome. But um, yeah, this is let's see, the American Film Institute has it as the uh, 52nd greatest American film of all time. Mm-hmm. I'd put it at like 50, 51. But it's <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh, Sight and Sound has it the 31st best film ever created. And a uh, decade-long critics poll ranked it with Godfather Part Two as the fifth greatest film. Yeah, and it is in the Library of Congress, so it is deemed an important film to be preserved. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to agree with every oh, ounce yeah. of all of that accolade. Yeah, uh, I kind of want to start talking about uh, De Niro's performance because mm-hmm. uh, it's it's fascinating. It is wild. Yeah, um, I'm so used to seeing De Niro being the aggressor. Yes, and uh, yeah, okay, yeah, he's aggressive in this, but in this he kind of plays kind of like a dopey, little bit damaged, tinted that he's got some some flak wounds from Vietnam. Yeah, I'm assuming. D- I think 
PTSD seems mm-hmm. to be a lot of what he's dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting because we talk about show don't tell a lot. They do, you don't know a lot about his military background. He's got a, a, a jacket yep. from Vietnam, and when he's doing push-ups in the one scene, he's got a scar yep. that looks like shrapnel and scars. In the, in the first scene when he is uh, like submitting to be a cab driver, mm-hmm. he asks him a little bit about it. He says, I was a Marine. I was honorably discharged. That's mm-hmm. pretty much it. That's all you know. But it's clear that like something happened to him in Nam. And the, he even says, too, when the guy asks him about education, he just kind of blows it off. Yeah. Because he is a little bit dumb. Yes. You know, maybe not stupid, but dumb. He, yeah, he's yeah. not educated. Yeah. And he plays that so well. Yes. And I'm so used to seeing him playing, you know, like a mob boss or at least like a, a guy in charge who's who's a step ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he's like a Holden Caulfield kind of character where he thinks he's a step ahead, but he's actually kind of out of touch. Yeah, yeah. And it's... and. You know, to disastrous results. Yeah, he uh, the the his performance is really interesting because it's a lot. It's interestingly, it's a lot in his face, but you don't get a lot of the De Niro face. Mm-mm. We we giggled yeah. a couple times when it would like shine through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, I I, I thought he looked like Christopher Maloney a lot. Yeah, and then, it was um, a very like understated performance for mm. him. It's it's not big and dramatic like a lot of his uh, a lot of his performances have, have it been. It's over weird. The last it's in my head years. like that. Like yeah. the iconography of it. Yeah, I picture you, know, you talking to me. Yeah. Talking, it's like a tough guy thing. Yeah, and but he's not a tough scene, guy. Even that scene. That's a comical scene. Yeah, and he's not giving it that huge delivery that we all remember it with. Mm-hmm. It's actually a pretty qu- it's a pretty quiet small delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I honestly wouldn't have selected that scene as the iconic scene, no, but it I just know. became that yeah. somehow. Uh, the what? So what's interesting about that scene? This was one of the things I was uh, going to say to you earlier. Uh, so that line is apparently improvised. Okay. Uh, in the script, it just said Travis mumbles to himself while he points guns in the mirror at himself. Mm. Uh, and so he improvised that. And this was what I thought was so fascinating. I'm, I'm going to do it off memory. I kind of remember. Uh, in uh, in one interview uh, years before, like in the 80s or something, Scorsese said, I think it was Scorsese, said that uh, De Niro told him he had seen a comic and the comic did that, did exactly oh, wow. what you see him do, and he thought it was funny and interesting and just repeated it verbatim in the scene. So he literally just lifted some comedian's material and repeated it in them at scene. But then uh, more recently, uh, maybe the writer uh, said that he heard a different story from De Niro that he had, what did he say? He had seen, he had like heard somebody in, somewhere else, like in public, do that. Mm-hmm. That it was something he had seen someone do. But either way, it was improvised and it was something that, it, you know, uh, he just as an actor saw someone do and picked it out as something interesting and important. Absolutely. And just, you know, uh, uh, co opted it for, for the character of Travis. I took one acting class ever. I do a whole bit about the acting class <laughs> that I took and I, I, I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that, that the teacher did say that, that I thought was very rather uh, interesting she said for homework we would just go watch people and write down things about them yeah and i thought that was cool and so there's an example of like he, yep. he probably did that i mean he is a tremendous actor oh yeah but i also like what you said about the comedian because yeah. that scene is probably the closest in the movie that he comes to being exactly. rupert pupkin from yeah. king of comedy yes, he yeah. plays that character he falls into it for half a second yeah because it's it's weird that scene to he's me performing he is performing and, and the way it seems, it's almost like he's performing to us through the camera. Yes. But it's it's uh, you buy into it because he's just performing into the mirror for himself. Yeah. So he's like amusing himself, and that's amusing to us. Yeah. And a scene that in my head, you know, I picture, you know, like do 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 I feel lucky? You know, yeah, like, yeah, I, I yeah, picture yeah. one of those, and it's not that at all. Yeah. It's it's not even a scene of 
of him showing toughness. It's almost no. a scene of vulnerability. Yeah, it's well, like a breaking point I was where he's say, like trying on the skin of a killer. Exactly. You know, it's, yeah. it's weird. Because uh, the whole movie is him trying on the skin of what he sees as, as different kinds of normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I feel like when he first approaches Sybil Shepard, oh, which is a great scene when, great he, when scene. He, he bursts into this uh, this political office that Sybil Shepard's character works in uh, because he really wants to talk to her. He's been like staring at her through the windows very creepily for it seems like a couple of weeks. Uh, and he really wants to talk to her, so he goes and he says he wants he to... Puts on his best orange corduroy uh, <laughs> yeah. sport coat. Uh, says he wants to volunteer for a political thing. Uh, but he the the way he's acting in that scene, I felt like was very like it was clearly not Travis. Oh, that was perfect. You really handled that well. <laughs> I tried. Keep going. I'm listening. Uh, he uh, my cat just knocked over Dan's coat. Uh, the he the way he pl- the way he a- approaches her is is does not seem normal and he seems uncomfortable in the way that he's approaching her. Mm. It seems like he's trying on the idea of what he thinks not just a normal person is like, but the type of person she would want would be like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, that he's just stepping into some character he's playing, uh, a character that he thinks she'll respond to. And I think it's interesting that... that- you say that because this whole movie is trying on different skins yeah. and trying different realities. But his big criticism is the fact that everything's messed up and everyone's kind of a phony. Yeah. And so he thinks he's being real and he's yeah. kind of tricky himself. Oh, yeah. You know, well, he she... tries these things on and realizes they don't fit. Exactly. You know, these suits don't fit him. And she calls him out on it immediately. They go mm-hmm. on that first date to the diner and she quotes that song to him uh, that was like, uh, you're a prophet and a pusher. Um, uh, I've never been a pusher. Yeah, yeah. If it's like you're a provident <laughs> a pusher, you're like a like a like an honest man, but a cheater or something mm. like that. You're a walking contradiction. Mm. Uh, and he questions her, and she says, "No, the walking contradiction part. That's that's what I see in you." That was actually a cool edit, I thought, on Scorsese's part, because when she says that song to him, and he, he responds, he's like, I, "I'm not a pusher. I was never a pusher." And he's kind of a little bit off put. Yeah. And then she hits him with, the, "No, you're not a pusher, but you're definitely a walking contradiction." And then it cuts there. We don't yeah. see his reaction. Yeah. And I, I found that to be interesting because I, I wanted this. It looked like he was going to blow up. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe there's something there that was cut, or maybe it was just smart script writing where it's like that's all we needed to see yeah yeah you know that's what the movie wanted to let us see there were a lot of really interesting cuts like that throughout the whole movie Mm. in in fact there were a lot of times where he cut the camera in places where i was like that is a weird choice Mm -hmm. like he there were a couple times where you know the whatever scene travis was the focus of would end and it would cut to something else just like a shot of the street but you'd only see that shot for a half a second before it just cut to the next scene. Mm-hmm. Like that little shot of the street is unnecessary. It doesn't need to be there at all. But for some reason, he would hang on it for just a little bit. It was really odd. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of odd editing choices like that. And there this. was a couple scenes even too where the camera would leave the action. There, um, there was the one where he's on, on the, the phone. phone. Yeah, it was and so it pans weird. to the right. Yeah, and it it shows basically the exit of yep. the scene. And um, I, I mean, the only thing I got from it, because it was definitely a noticeable shot, yeah. but it was one of those where it showed like he's off in the corner dealing with his problems, but we see the street, the yes. whole world's still happening yes. outside of this. That's what I took from it. But, yeah, yeah. And that's just the depth of, of hand that, that Scorsese has. I oh, mean, I know. It Even uh, with Wolf of Wall Street this year, mm-hmm. one of the things I always marveled about it was he's an old man now, yeah. and that movie was alive. It popped. It had so energy, energy. So alive. It was very youthful. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird to see... You know, this is when he was youthful. Yes. And he, uh, it's a very, it's, but it's not as active. No, no, but no. But it's no. still like, uh, 
you know, it's still alive. It's it's just very much a movie that the whole thing is kind of grab you know grabbing you and pulling you in. I want to read you something really quick from the the Wikipedia page for this because it it is we a- research these movies, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. a lot via uh, via Wikipedia. Uh, so I thought this was really it, it speaks to what you're talking about this is an interesting quote um, the director talks about how Martin Scorsese talks about how much of the film arose from his feeling that movies are like dreams or drug induced reveries mm-hmm. which I think very much describes sort of the, the feel of this movie and the tone of this movie but this next one is uh, a, a little more uh, interesting he admits attempting to incubate within the viewer the feeling of being in a limbo state somewhere between sleep and waking I guess that I mean that Which definitely exactly fits because that's where he is. Of Travis the whole time. Well, I noticed there was a couple scenes like the one where he kicks over his TV. Yeah. I don't know if it was. Uh, I mean, one thing that we were lucky is the DVD you had was yes. not the digitally remastered, no. so it actually looked like a film print, which yes. was nice. So I don't know if this is part of the transfer, if it was on purpose, but the TV screen that he's watching was super crisp, so much that you could see the fluorescent lighting reflecting off the screen. To the left side of the screen is him leaning back in his chair, and he was foggy. Yeah, and I, I didn't know if it was purposefully out of focus. But there was even a couple times uh, when he first confronts uh, Jodie Foster's character yeah. in the uh, in like the hooker house mm-hmm. when she first uh, says like you know maybe I don't want to leave maybe it's, and it cuts back to him he goes out of focus yeah, ever so slightly yeah, yeah. and it feels n- like a nightmare in a, in a yeah, weird way yeah uh, w- which he keeps telling people that they're in hell mm-hmm. uh, which I think is sort of another important aspect of this which is he's clearly living in his own hell mm-hmm. whatever is going on inside of Travis Bickle is a hell for him mm-hmm. uh, that he doesn't know how to escape or move forward from. Uh, but he's constantly, it's the contradiction, he's constantly accusing other people of living in their own hell. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like if someone calls you like a, a name, yeah. and it's something you call yourself all the time, but you get mad at them. Yeah, 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 you yeah. Know? yeah. You don't get to, you don't get to call me fat. Yeah, I do. You know, well, and he, that, he has that kind of attitude. Like you're the freaks. I'm the normal one. Yeah, exactly. And it's that you're tra- square. It's that transference thing too, where like, um, uh, you ever notice uh, where like somebody will be complaining about something they don't like about people? Like, oh, I hate when people talk too much. Whoever's saying that is someone that talks too much. Oh, uh, I hate when people talk too much, and I know I talk too much. Yeah, it's we we sort of we tend to. It's a transference thing where things that uh, we. Uh, don't feel great about about ourselves but can't admit to ourselves we will transfer onto other people that those Absolutely. are bad qualities for other people and uh, i think too it's something that informs him and this is just a, a guess but i think it's it's uh i think i can back it up he is a vietnam vet mm-hmm. vietnam war that's like the vets that came back from that had the worst of it because it was a war that didn't have an end mm-hmm. and there was no justified good guy or bad guy by the end of it it was mm-hmm. just a mess of death won a lot of and rules so for of war him to, yeah you know and so he came back saw some shit yeah. got blown up and then comes back to new york and goes i was trying to save this yeah and i think that eats at you i mean i know people who were just in afghanistan and iraq and stuff that didn't even see heavy action or anything mm-hmm. but came back with similar attitudes yeah. where it was just like these are the idiots I was, I was protecting. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, uh, I feel like that, that definitely is an impetus that pushes him towards his, uh, Absolutely. his destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so something that you brought up mid movie that I thought was interesting that, uh, cause I, I don't know if by the time we got to the end of the movie, you, you realized what I was trying to say. Uh, you, you brought up that, uh, Hinckley, uh, tried to uh, murder, who was it, Reagan? It was Reagan. Yeah. Uh, to earn Jodie Foster's love. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is basically the impetus for that. Like, oh, yeah. Very directly, though. That, uh, that was something that when he was uh, looking like he was going to shoot the presidential candidate, yeah. since I hadn't seen this, I was like, oh, it's one of those movies. It's yeah, the story yeah, yeah. of the guy who makes... The, oh, it's the story of an assassin. Yeah. Turns out it's not. No. But, uh, yeah, that's that's wild well, how dead I mean, on it, it was. Very directly, though, because supposedly... 
I forget what it was, but Hinckley had made reference to this movie at some point where, like, he believed because of this movie where Travis Bickle is trying to... I, not really earn a woman's love by murdering the candidate, but uh, but take revenge on the woman mm-hmm. actually to murder the candidate. He had somehow convinced himself that this was like a blueprint for how he earns Jodie Foster's love. Mm-hmm. That taking out some sort of political candidate is how you earn that, uh, based pretty much solely on this movie, which is cr- is crazy, uh, especially when you think about all the weird arguments uh, mothers had in the '90s about uh, you know the way video games and movies oh, yeah. and TV. Actually, this is something I thought of. Um, when you think about movies, there's always the argument of, do movies inspire violence? Yeah. And uh, one of the things I thought was very interesting, if Taxi Driver was made nowadays, when he was sitting there with his gun next to his head, mm-hmm. scratching his head, watching TV, he would have been watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and everyone yeah. would have been like, okay, I get it, as yeah, they yeah, beat yeah, you over yeah. that with the message. He was watching Soul Train, it looked yeah. like. Yep. He wasn't watching anything yeah. at all, and it was just as effective as he was watching. It was just people dancing on TV. Yeah. And it was just regular, normal person television but did you know that was even more effective to me yeah yeah well now I, I think on one hand that is what's so effective about it that he's watching normal people do normal things mm-hmm. and it's driving him nuts driving him nuts that's uh, so much better than someone being like "Ooh, chainsaws on tv i'm yeah. gonna kill people that's so that is that is unearned villainy at, at at its finest i agree and it's very it's a clear parallel to what we already see travis going through as well mm-hmm. uh, it's very clear that uh something about normalcy because he doesn't have it makes him uncomfortable. He, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't understand it. Um, and, and I think he thinks kind of what you were saying about, um, you know, when veterans come back and like, these are the people I was protecting. I kind of think there's a little bit of that as well. It's not just a jealousy of normalcy, but it's also like a, why can you do this? Why can you just dance around and enjoy yourself? Don't you see everything else that I see? Why are you able to just blissfully be ignorant of all of that? Uh, and how much that upsets him. But there's another layer to this, which is that he was watching something like Soul Train. He was watching a bunch of black people dance around. Oh, yeah. And he's definitely racist. He is a clear racist throughout Mm. most of this movie. Uh, Apparently, in the original script, he was like an overt racist and said a lot of racist things to to different people. Uh, And Scorsese wanted to cut a lot of that. And I understand why. I, I would assume the reason is because, at the end of the day, Travis is our protagonist. Absolutely. And I think that would... You you still side with him in some way. You have just to enough at least to be able it. to sympathize with him. Exactly, and so so you do, and so you, you see that. And what I like about it, um, actually, we, we talked about this with Satoya on Super Crappy Fun Time. Okay. The most dangerous racism isn't the people running around screaming the N word and right. saying people do this, people do that. Right. It's the people that don't even realize it. Yeah. It's this insidious switch that was turned on, yes. and it's in you, and you make a judgment about a person without even realizing you're doing it, yep. and that's where the problems lie. Oh, yeah. And I think De Niro captured that perfectly. Oh, he really. Um, because because I know people like yeah. that. You know, I'm guilty of it sometimes myself. It's un it's unstoppable. Yep. But when you see that there, you you uh, you see that he's not the the best person in the world. Mm-hmm. But if he was just you know being overtly racist left and right, it would seem cartoonish. Oh yeah, and it would it would almost. You know, it would it would just justify the behavior that he's condemning in well, a way. And what's interesting is we see him certainly judge and condemn people of all races throughout mm-hmm. it. Uh, but most... he doesn't like screwheads, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. what they are, but he doesn't like that. Most frequently, he is. Uh, we see him staring at black people and judging black people. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the times, it's pretty clear through the context of the movie that he is staring at pimps or criminals or um, uh, uh, just like gangbangers. Uh, that happen to be black, right? So it's like, yeah, and he's also staring at people that are other races doing the same thing. So there's a little bit of like, oh, he just doesn't like 
criminal activity, but there is a very distinct, like it's so frequently that those people are black that then that you get this really, it's exactly what you're talking about, that like built-in switch. Mm-hmm. That like, yes, Travis hates crime and criminals and he's sort of in a, uh, Scorsese described him as an avenging angel mm-hmm. uh, that was watching over New York. Um, but uh, there is also that switch that has been switched off inside of him that I don't think he even knows or understands. Oh, yeah. That in it's general, in black people are the ones doing those things, you mm. know? Uh, and it was really interesting to have the, again, the ostensible, ostensibly the p- protagonist of the movie uh, have something so, I mean, I was about to say so evil inside him as if racism was uh, on a different kind of evil than just plain wanting to murder yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, with his murder, he did have the best intentions. Oh, yeah. But that's that's not how you do it. But uh, also, I do think if you look at the sort of linearly what happens, does he have the best intentions when he commits those murders at the end of the movie? Because essentially what happens is he goes to murder a potential presidential candidate mm-hmm. and not for the best of intentions, not at all, mm-hmm. literally strictly to have it's revenge spite, yeah. on a woman. It's spite. And when he can't do it, when he's prevented from doing it, he just immediately takes that rage out on those guys. Now, yes, of course, the people he decides to take that rage out on are people that probably deserve to have something uh, happen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is it really for any sort of ju- is it really for any just reason, or is it just he he knows he can he can do the aggressive thing that he needs to do that's been building up inside of him? Oh yeah, uh, well, he, can, he I think he wants to do it. Yeah, but he justifies it by saying. No, I'm saving this little girl. Right. You know, and I'm punishing the bad guys. Because even when he has the conversation with uh, Jodie Foster in the yeah. diner, yeah. and he's like, no, but when you leave, what are you going to do, do to her? Yeah. What it's are you going to do? It's not enough to get her out. Yeah. He he's got to do something bad. He doesn't care about that. Yeah. I do want to jump back when we were talking about the race thing. Yes. The one part where it was very clear. Yeah. Um, he does have a foil to his closed-mindedness, which is Peter Boyle's character, yes. Wizard. Yes. Who's, yes. He's, he's like the Buddhist of the bunch. Yep. His advice to everybody is like, you're not going to change it. Just chill. Enjoy it. You know? Yeah. Get, he, sa- he says, my advice is like, go out. Get laid. You yeah. know? Dude, do something. Get it, get drunk. Get, yeah. get it out. But you're not going to change anything. But when he first meets up with them, Wizard knows uh, uh, Travis. Yep. He's got two white guys with him and his black friend. Yeah. And he comes in, he's cold to everybody, yep. but he won't even look oh, yeah. at the black guy. And uh and it's and it's funny because the black guy like almost says hey to him and yeah. then like reads it on him like this isn't gonna go anywhere. Yeah. And so it's it's there. It's definitely there. I thought that was really interesting. But at actually. the same time, he's not really kind to anybody. No. You know, he he doesn't really give any of them no. uh, the time uh, of day. In fact, throughout the entire movie, the only two people he truly has interactions with are uh, Jodie Foster and um, uh, what was her character? What was Civil Shepard's Betsy. character? Betsy. Betsy. Um, otherwise, he very minorly interacts with people and always in a character. And I guess even Betsy, he's acting as a character most mm. of the time too. Um, I, I, in reality, probably only Iris is the is the character that gets like the real Travis, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Uh, it's just interesting that he. I don't even know how to describe what it is that he's going through. Like PTSD seems like the easiest way to describe it, but it seems like there's something more there. Like especially because Scorsese calls him the Avenging Angel of New mm. York. Like, it feels the, to me like a it's like a puberty almost. Yeah, yeah. Because he he comes in with like with like a little bit of idealism. Yeah. So I think I'm gonna meet this woman. We're gonna settle down. It's gonna yeah. be great. That's all I need. Because he even even he says through narration in his in his mm-hmm. journal that like. He needed to have some sort of meaning to the life, and that's what yeah, he, yeah. he can't figure out. Yeah. And, you know, that's definitely a PTSD kind of mm-hmm. thing. 
And so he he goes in with that idealism, but it, it doesn't work. When he finally opens up and takes her to the movies, I'm going to take my girl to the movies, but he takes her to a, a porno theater. And to him, it's a clueless idea because he doesn't really, I don't know a lot about movies. I don't really follow yeah, movies. Yeah, I don't. Okay, I wanted to talk about that scene. Do you do you think he didn't know what he was doing? Do you think that's real? Like, is he I being honest a little bit when of he the says dumbness. He, didn't, he didn't know what he was doing? Well, I mean, he, he seems like a guy who just, like, whereas me, I know everything about every movie that's about to come out. I know if there's going to be a sure, porno sure, playing. Sure. You don't even have to be a movie no, guy. No, but it was, it was a but porno But him, he doesn't theater. follow. Yeah. It was literally a porno theater. It straight up said, like, XXX movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says before they even walk inside, this is the kind of movie you're going to bring me to. Mm-hmm. And then he makes, like, a really oddball excuse, like, couples go to this. Oh, like, yeah. Which is I've not seen all kinds re- of couples. Yeah. yeah, which is, like, clear. that's, like, a very, I mean, puberty is a really good way to describe that because that is a very, like, immature, to me, clearly just, like, trying to say anything to convince her to get into this theater with him. Like, just, mm-hmm. like... Because that doesn't even make sense. See, I didn't feel like there was any underhandedness to it. I thought it was just a dumb thing that he did. I don't think there was underhandedness to it. Mm. That I don't think. I don't think he was trying to do anything creepy to or with her necessarily. Mm. But Because she takes it like that. She says, taking me to this movie is like saying, let's fuck. Right. And he's like off put by that because like you could tell it's not that wasn't his intention to right. get her all hot. I, well, right. I don't think so either. But I also don't think it was totally innocent. Mm. I don't think it was malicious, but I don't think it was innocent. So uh, I think it was him just not realizing. Like the, the, it was a moment where he. It, it's where the costume started to come off. The skin he was wearing because yeah. he was you know he was taking it. He got this girl, this great yeah. girl who's totally out of his league. See, that's how I he's going to take her to the it. movies, and then he starts to open up because he goes to the porn movie all the right. time, and that's when it, it's distinct that they're from two different worlds, and he realized this skin doesn't fit. That's how I felt you about know? it. That's kind of what I thought that he. It wasn't that he brought her there because like oh I don't know any better. I I don't know what I don't know movie. I don't know porn movies from regular movies. Mm. He's not that fucking stupid he's not like a brick you know what i mean Mm. he knows the difference between porn movies and regular movies i think but i think he has been going to these porn movies for so long and partly just to try and help him sleep like he's literally doing it to take his mind off things it's a place he likes to go he wants to share it with exactly that's that's how i felt something that like numbs him and he thinks that's something he needs to share with her and they did a very interesting visual thing in this scene when they show uh when they show from backstage Earlier, yeah. when he's at the uh, porn theater buying uh, Clark bars, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they do like a like through the window. You can see the projector, and you yeah. can kind of see a little bit of the the porn. Oh, that on was it. cool. That was when a great they go shot. and sit down, and it's a, from the back of the theater. The shot. I'm talking with my hands like this is not yeah, a podcast, yeah. but from the back of the theater, you can see the screen, and that is intentionally very blurry. Oh, so blurry! And you it's clearly just on. something pornographic. Yeah. but that's cool, and that's one of those things that perhaps they pulled it out of focus to keep their R rating. Right. But I, I like to think it might have just been an artistic choice because. Because it it got the point across without being distracting from yeah, the scene, yeah, yeah. and that to me is smart movie movie making for sure. Because we're in the scene and we don't go, oh, the screen's blurry. They're right. watching a blurry screen. It, it didn't feel like that at all. No. Whereas if there's porn, the scene would be dead because you'd be like, holy shit, there's a dick on screen. You it know? also makes it way more effective when he does show the porn because the scene you're talking about is actually when Travis is there alone. Yeah, no, I'm saying when they go on the date later and they show the screen, it's 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 foggy. No. Uh, when he goes early in the movie on his own, we see the really blurry porno screen. Well, you we can't even we see, see what he's the, watching. We see through the little window into the projector. Yeah, but then it cuts down inside as he's sitting down, and we see a very blurry screen where you can't see what's happening. We don't see the screen in that scene. It's only his face sitting in the chair. 
You I, get the view from the screen. It's not until the they go screen, on the date. Right? You see the blurry screen. When you don't, what happens when he goes with the woman later, when he goes mm. with Sybil Shepherd, we do see the screen and we see what they're watching. I Remember? think we should check that. No, and they, I'm positive. Uh, they don't show it in that happen. one. I don't think you see it in that scene. Yeah, you do. And that's what was so effective about it because he left it blurry in the first scene. We got to check this. I, I don't think that's, I I don't think that's, that's the case at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when they were in there, I, I remember distinctly seeing... Like, oh, it's clear that they're watching porno, but they're not showing the porno. No, they were definitely showing the porno yeah. because they kept cutting to shots of him and then shots of, it was literally, remember it was an orgy. It was like an instructional educational video where there was like oh, some yeah, voiceover. Oh, yeah, you're right. You know what? You're right. Orgy. Yeah, because they actually and show that. And the reason it was so effective is because it was blurry when we saw him going alone. Mm, that's right? what it is. It, yeah, really you're right. blurry when he goes now alone. Now I remember. And we get the point. It's not distracting. We don't have to see the porn. We get the point of what's going on, especially because actually, he even is there. using it to numb himself, right? Mm -hmm. So it almost makes sense that like, Let's say we're seeing it from his perspective that it would be blurry. He doesn't actually care what he's seeing. Mm. He's there to just numb his brain for a while. But so then we when see what she's seeing, really, the second exactly. time. Exactly. And we're that's true because there's actually, I don't believe there's a shot in that scene now that I'm, now that I'm remembering it clearer. Yeah. I don't think they actually show from the back at all. Mm -mm. It's just the screen and then close-ups on their faces yeah. and like just the people sitting exactly. in the theater. Mm. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what, you know, it was very effective that you actually very distinctly and blatantly mm. see porn then when she's in the theater. Yeah, because it was blurry before. That's what's oh. happening to her is like that is just an assault and then an ons you know, like an onslaught of. of, of oh, it's viscera. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, something that she just can't process and sit through and finds very odd that he is so numbly sitting through it, I think. Mm. And um, I think that that answers the question as to his intentions getting yes. her there. He doesn't see it as a strange right, thing. Right, right. And that's where their worlds divide. Yeah. And that's like, ooh, that's where that's where he starts to lose a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's a victory for Albert Brooks. Yeah, you yeah. know, yes. he's uh he's the uh the other part of this love triangle. He's he is so he's funny great. in the movie. <laughs> uh the the scene where she's trying to point out uh uh Travis in the taxi mm. and she's like, "You don't see him? Put your glasses on." He's got his glasses on. He's like, "Okay." Give me a second. Yeah, yeah. All right. They have such a good... Uh, if if she had not started going on dates with Travis, I yeah. would have just assumed that her and Albert Brooks were dating. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it definitely played that way. Yep. Yeah, they had a very uh, a good rapport. Mm -hmm. uh, but, Scor oh, uh, so Scorsese does a bunch of really smart things with this, although it, could be, it might be in the writing as well, which he didn't write the script. What, uh, it's Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader, uh, who's the, awesome. Oh, and this, and this was probably more his script than Scorsese's filmmaking, uh, but there is a lot of great dialogue in this uh, that is is excellent show don't tell. Mm. Uh, so we, which is funny because it's dialogue. Yeah, uh, but the in there's the, a way to do that elegantly though. Oh yes, and you know do, when it's, it's narration, it's boring. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. all over the script. In a very minor way, we actually have it in that scene uh, between Albert Brooks and Sybil Shepherd, where they're they're looking at Travis through the window. Uh, she is like so focused on something she's talking about, she's not listening to Albert Brooks, and he realizes she's not listening to him, so he slips in and I love you. Mm -hmm. and she ignores it and keeps going, and that tells us everything we need to know about their relationship. Oh, yeah. It did not everything. take me until Travis asks her out and she says yes to know that they weren't dating. Mm -hmm. That moment of I love you and her not recognizing it and continuing to move on tells me everything. And even when really he goes out love, to kind of scare him away too, yeah. that's totally him flexing to, yes. to try and impress her. Exa yeah. Exactly. Mm. Uh, but in more major ways, there's a lot of really fun stuff they do in this script that is great show, don't tell. So very early on in the movie... Uh, one of the other cab drivers says to Travis, hey, do you have a gun? He says, no, I don't have a gun. He says, are you thinking about getting a gun? He says, no, I'm not thinking about getting a gun. He's like, I think you should get a gun. If you need a gun, I got a guy who can get you a gun. Very offhanded conversation. It makes sense because they've already mm. established the fact that Travis drives all over the city to the really and nice neighborhoods. And it builds the character the of the people that are his, his like, peers. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, 
gives them something to be. Exactly. You know. Uh, and then, of course, later in the movie, Travis decides he does want a gun. And now we've already been given the information that he knows where to get a gun. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, Yeah, so when that scene opens up, there's really no intro to it. It's right. just, oh, that's the gun guy. Now, when he goes to, to the gun guy, he asks him for a very specific gun. Why does he ask him for that specific gun? Because earlier in the movie, Martin Scorsese sat in the back of his cab mm-hmm. and described a very specific gun to him that he was going to use to kill his own wife. And that was one of the most disgusting conversations oh, yeah. I've ever heard. Um, kudos to Scorsese for being able to act. But he played that. He, he was, was really good in that Really scene. good because he was terrifying. Yeah. And that is... That, we're going to talk about this now because that is one of my favorite things in the world is ambiguity for the sake of ambiguity. Yes. Because in the scene, it's Travis is in the car, uh, Scorsese's his uh, his uh, passenger in the back. He asks him to pull over. Yep. They have a little disagreement over, you know, he says, hey, leave the meter on. Yep. We want to stay here. My wife is in that house fucking somebody that I don't like. Yep. And he's, he's dropping N-bombs. He's being awful. Yep. And then he starts saying, you know, I, I'm going to kill her. Yep. I, I'm going to shoot her in the face with this gun. You know yep. what that'll do to her face? You know what it'll do to her pussy? He's like, yep. just disgusting, disgusting, this awful guy. And that's where the scene ends. Yep. We don't know if he does it, nope. if Travis watches him do it, nope. if Travis kicks him out or whatever. Yep. Because that's the point where Travis is starting to realize that like, he was always against the killers and the murderers. Mm-hmm. And now he's starting to go, well, maybe justice can be can be doled out on a street level. And I don't know if he read uh, Scorsese's character as disgusting and he's right. part of the problem or, oh, maybe he's the key to the solution. And we never know because and the we don't face know. he's making the whole time, I feel like, can go both ways. Mm-hmm. You can interpret the only reaction we get of Travis is his face. He seems entertained and that's all. I don't even is know Is he entertained because he's, he's going to beat him up? Is he entertained because he's going to he's into it? He just seems curious about it. Yeah. It's, it's it's a weird uh, scene. But I also think it plants the idea... I do think it plants the idea in his head of being able to use violence in some way mm-hmm. uh, for his mission. And um, I, in my head, I'm thinking... Because it, it was right after this that he kills the first guy mm-hmm. with, at the at the robbery. Yep. And um, it almost... In my head, I'm thinking... Let's say he watched Scorsese yep. do this. He's <laughs> just Scorsese as himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say he watches Martin Scorsese kill his wife. Yeah. You know, is that the, the key that he goes... I think killing's easy. No, I, I can actually tell you the key, I think, because that was okay. another thing I was going to bring up. So we have this series of show, don't tell, right? Like, mm. we get the thing about the gun early in the movie. Then we build towards this scene where, like, it seems random. Scorsese gets in his car and has this weird conversation with him about a gun and wanting to kill his wife. Then he buys a gun from that guy. It's that specific gun. Uh, and then he he's now, he's all suited up. He's all strapped up. And we I don't think we as an audience even necessarily know yet that he has the idea to kill the senator. It's it's building towards that, I but I don't remember if at this point in the movie we really know that for sure. But he's in a convenience store, and a guy happens to try and rob that convenience store. And he happens to be suited up with at least one of his guns, so he shoots that guy in the face. Mm-hmm. That is the key. I think that's the moment, and it's more show-don't-tell, when Travis realizes, yes, mm-hmm. I can kill. And it's I, validated immediately because yes. he says, this gun's unregistered. Yep. And the guy behind the counter is so thankful that he saved yes. his life that he's just like, don't worry about it. Give me the gun. I'll exactly. cover it. Exactly. And, it's, and that also shows a lot about the, the mentality of street justice in mm-hmm. 70s New York yep. because it's, that's not even enough for that guy. When Travis leaves, he proceeds to beat the corpse with a crowbar. Yeah. Whether he's creating evidence to, of a struggle or whether he's just getting it out for justice's right. sake. 
it, that's another ambiguity, but it, it fits both and it works. It, yeah. it, it feeds that. I, I, there was a, even the way New York was shot in this, especially during the daytime things, there was a lot of, uh, it looked like a travel guide almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way it was shot where it would show like, boom, the sign in front of the building, it would sweep down to the door and have people walking out. Yeah. It felt like a, a visual brochure that you'd watch, like take a trip to New York. Yeah. And you know, you watch that at the, Except uh, that at it the travel like a giant fucking trash can the whole exactly. time. Exactly. But it's shot in the way that, that has this weird reverence for New York. Yeah. So there's almost this weird spirit of, of the vigilante yeah, because it, it portrays New York as as something that's worth saving. Yes, but it also portrays it as the disgusting shithole that it was yeah. in '76. Which is one of the super interesting things about this movie, which is at the end of the day, again, Scorsese calls him an avenging angel. Mm. There is, I don't know, I don't know if the movie has an opinion about what Travis does necessarily, mm. uh, but there is sort of this feeling throughout the whole thing that what Travis is doing is. It, n- not righteous necessarily, but something that New York needs and something mm. New York wants. Someone to patrol the streets late at night and observe all the things that are happening that Someone knows wants what's to rattle going the cages. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there does seem to be a weird desperation for Travis in this movie, if that mm. makes sense. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but I don't know. I don't know if the movie really judges what Travis does or who Travis is, one way or the other. Honestly, it doesn't really cast judgment on any of the characters. Yeah. Even the most disgusting characters aren't played as villainous. Right. They're just played as real. I. I mean, Harvey Keitel's character right. is the pimp. He's kind of cartoony, but he plays like I would picture a real pimp to be. Yeah, for sure. You know, it doesn't play. He doesn't play like a villain. He just plays like a creep, and mm-hmm. that's what it is. Yeah. And and the fact that he's Harvey Keitel, a world-renowned creep, really does help. But uh, uh, I want to talk uh, kind of about the ending. You said something really interesting as as the movie was coming uh, yes. to a close that I would like to talk about. Well, it ends with um, our, his mission is arguably a success in some way. Yes, because he's been exonerated. He's healthy. Yep. yep. And uh, not only has he been exonerated, he's been heroicized. Yep. And it seems that the skin of the hero fits in a way that he doesn't even care about being the hero. He blows right. it off. And um, but one of the things that they do is they show a letter yes. from Iris's parents, yes. saying thank you for saving our daughter. Yes, we tried to visit you while you were in the hospital, and blah blah blah. But as they're as the narration of the the letter is being read by a fatherly voice, he's reading it in a way to me that sounded like a thirteen year old girl. It totally sounded weird. And the fact that it's like bubbly, that. very feminine, cursive writing that looks like that of a thirteen year old girl. It looks to me, my guess would be that Iris did not go home, mm-hmm. or at least wasn't there for long. Mm-hmm. And she's writing this letter because the the letter's purpose, the way it was written, was very heavy on the, I tried to visit, I can't come visit, it's very right. unlikely that I'll ever visit, but thank you, I want you to know you did a great thing, thank you so much, everything's fine for me, but let's never be ever right. around each other ever again. And that sounds to me like a girl on the run, and not like a family that's thankful for getting their daughter back, whom they disowned so hard that she became a junkie prostitute at 13. Yeah. So it just didn't seem real to me, but I, I like that. The other way I could have interpreted it is that the way that the guy was reading it kind of in a broken cadence is that it's Travis Bickle's, you know, not-so-educated brain reading the letter in a voice that he's assuming a father sounds like at his own cadence because he's not a strong reader. Right. I don't think that's it. I really do think that it's it's Iris writing it as a, I'm fine, but please stay away. So do you think, uh, I guess maybe there's an irony to the ending, that he's heroicized, but it turns out the mission that he truly set out to accomplish has not been accomplished? 
I think it's ambiguous, really. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's not enough evidence to support or dispute my claim. It can right. be taken either way. But at the end of the day, for Travis personally, internally, yes. it's a victory for him. Yes, and it shows. His mohawk's gone. He's yeah. back. He's driving the cab, yeah. and he's he actually has a very adult and uh, mature conversation with this girl that he was ready to murder someone out of spite for. Yeah. And so, did he grow? Is this just a new skin he's trying on? We don't know. Right. But to him, it was a success. Right. Uh, the downside to this is that if he isn't changed, all that does is vindicate murderous behavior. Right. And so that's where I think the ambiguity comes in. And that's where I love it. And that's yeah. why we can talk about it. Yes. If it was cut and dry, it would be pointless. Well, I want to read you some quotes about the ending okay. that I think are really interesting. So this is from uh, Ebert's. Uh, I don't know if this was in his original review of the movie, but because I'm sure he's written about it since. But uh, there's been much discussion about the ending in which we see newspaper clippings about Travis's heroism of saving Iris. And then Betsy gets into his cab and seems to give him admiration instead of her earlier disgust. Is this a fantasy scene? Did Travis survive the shootout? Are we experiencing his dying thoughts? Can the sequence be accepted as literally true? I am not sure there can be an answer to these questions. The end sequence plays like music, not drama. It completes the story on an emotional, not a literal level. We end not on carnage, but on redemption, which is the goal of so many of Scorsese's characters. So he interprets it as a dream sequence altogether. I think it very well be taken like that. Yeah. Especially, I like the whole idea of, uh, excuse me, his dying thoughts. Exactly. Because that's the perfect fantasy. Yes. Is that he's now the respected hero. Yes. You know, the woman that, that dislikes him, is disgusted by him, yes. is now in, honored to be in his presence. Yes. And he saved the day. Well, and he also, in, in the scene where, in the shootout, he kills a bunch of guys, has ostensibly accomplished what he wanted to accomplish, and then tries to kill himself mm-hmm. with, with multiple guns, tries to kill himself. He asks the cop to kill him. He... he See, there, I don't even think he's asking the cop to kill him, mm. uh, partly because of one of the quotes in here from Scorsese. He describes that as the, um, as the uh, is it the samurai code? The honorable death. Oh, yeah. Harakiri. Harakiri. Mm. Uh, the, the honorable death. That is what that is supposed to be symbolism for. Okay. That Travis wants to give himself the honorable death now that he has committed the honorable act. Mm. Uh, and if that were the case, it would make sense that he would die shortly thereafter and his dying thoughts would be of the honor that would be bestowed upon him for Absolutely. his act. Mm. Uh, however, uh, let me read you another quote that's in this Wikipedia article uh, from uh, James Berardinelli. Oh, okay, he's uh, a movie reviewer. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he argues against that interpretation. Scorsese and Paul Schrader append the perfect conclusion to Taxi Driver. Steeped in irony, the five-minute epilogue underscores the... Vi- uh, I don't know how to pronounce this word. V- va- vagaries? Va- vagaries, yeah. Vagaries of fate. Uh, the media vaginas. <laughs> the media builds Bickle into a hero when, had he been a little quicker drawing his gun against Senator Palantine, he would have been reviled as an assassin. As the film closes, the myth, the misanthrope has been embraced as the model citizen, someone who takes on pimps, drug dealers, and mobsters to save one little girl. Um, and then, so he argues against the that mm. it's supposed to be irony, and that's that, interesting too. Yeah. The fact that he was literally seconds away of exactly. becoming a Hinkley, and that's you what know? I was trying yeah. to say earlier, which is like how 
how much do you think he's motivated by justice in reality mm. when he goes to kill uh, the pimps? Mm. Because the because re- he literally goes from trying to kill the senator to immediately killing the pimps. It's it's a real quick change of skins. Yeah, he he doesn't like the skin of the assassin. It gets yep. too real too quick, and he's yep. got to run. Yeah, and then um, it, as reactionary, he immediately jumps into the skin of the of the vigilante. Right, and you know. And delivers in 10 minutes a better movie than the Boondock Saints could do in two movies. <laughs> so, there's that. Uh, one, one last thing I want to read you on the ending, because this is actually from Scorsese himself. Uh, on the Laser Dick... Uh, laser Dick. On, on the, the Laser Dick. <laughs> on the Laser Dick. That's actually commentary. Scorsese's next movie, Laser Dick. <laughs> it's uh, it's, it's going to be amazing. On the, it's uh, taken on the future. On the Laserdisc audio commentary, Scorsese acknowledged several critics' interpretation of the film's ending being Bickle's dying dream. He admits that the last scene of Bickle glancing at an unseen object implies that he might fall into rage and recklessness in the future, and he is like a ticking time bomb. Writer Paul Schrader confirms this in his commentary on the 30th anniversary DVD, stating that Travis is not cured by the movie's end, and that he's not going to be a hero next time. When asked on the website Reddit about the ending of the film, Schrader stated that it was not to be taken as a dream sequence, but he had envisioned it as a returning... Oh, this is really interesting. As returning to the beginning of the film, as if the last frame could be spliced to the first frame and the movie started all over again. Now, that that to me is super interesting because, you know, we don't know what he saw in Vietnam. Right. But if he ends in the same thing, like, you know, he was he was discharged yeah now in vietnam you could get honorably discharged and have done something pretty awful Mm -hmm. but it's a heroic act Mm -hmm. so it could be exactly the same thing and we're just back at square one yep you know and it's that same kind of rebellious offness that i think attracts betsy to him yes you know when he he has that confidence and although it's a little bit dismembered and it's a little bit out there it's there yeah and so you know, and I think people are attracted to that. Yeah. People are attracted to the to the little offness. And so at the end when she's endeared by him again, it's because he has that, dare I say, swag that comes with that, mm-hmm. that comes with having just had a, a near-death experience. Right. So, it, but that's the beauty of this movie is I think all of those have enough evidence to be good interpretations for well, the ending. And that, uh, uh, I, I want to talk about kind of my own interpretation after having mm-hmm. read that and then watching the movie again. What was interesting is, so on one hand, you do have the, the, the very last thing that happens in the movie that I thought was interesting and I think lends to Schrader's quote about the movie is he does flash a look to the rear view again mm. and there's a sound effect there. Do you notice that? There's like a ting. There's like mm. a weird like loud sound effect when he like looks up uh, into that rear view mirror the last time. Mm. So, and it was like it was almost like a horror movie sound effect. It was like a reep, reep. It was yeah, like one yeah. of those kind of sound effects, which definitely to me implies like some sort of evil still lurking oh, inside yeah. of him. Right? It had the same feel as when the killer's dead at the end and then dun, their eyes yeah, open up exactly. and they roll credits. Yeah, exactly. it had the same kind of feel. Uh, but I really do think those last five minutes feel very dreamlike. Well, the whole movie feels dreamlike, as, as was the intention. It certainly does, but the last five minutes specifically feel very dreamlike, especially his moment with Sybil in the car. Mm. Uh, because That was the one part that seemed fantasy to me. I think the, I'm in the camp of him actually being exonerated, Yeah, but I'm also definitely in the camp of, of Iris not making it home or not staying at home. Right. and and, um, and But and, the Betsy thing seems like a fantasy. Like He could easily just be having that dialogue in his head as he's driving. Alone. The whole time, you only ever see her in the rearview mirror. In well, she that, comes up to the window. She does, yeah. and I was paying attention to that. I was kind of hoping that that wouldn't happen, mm. because the whole time, it's just her floating head 
in his rearview mirror. That's all we see of her until mm. we do finally see and her. And it's windy get out too. It's like windy. Her hair yeah. is blowing. It seems like a fantasy. Yeah, yeah, the whole that whole sequence did seem very fantastical to I'll me. I'll throw this out there. He didn't charge her. So at the end of the day, there's actually no physical record of her even being right. there too. Yeah. So whether that matters or not is irrelevant, and but it's way, just something to think about. And the way he talked to her, here's another interesting thing. The way he talked to her was uh, as if he was a changed man, right? Mm-hmm. As if like he didn't care about her anymore. Mm-hmm. And he was he, he was proving to her that he was a changed man by being like, yeah, okay, nice to see you. Get it's I'm, a new skin of too cool cab. for school. Right, yeah. new skin, too cool for school. However, he seemed pretty fucking comfortable in that skin, which makes me think fantasy. Okay, fair enough. See, that to me makes me think what Schrader said, it's starting over again. Right. You know, where he, he, he did it. He's doing like, that was his first, at the very beginning of the movie, he's fucked up, but he's like, I'll be a cabbie. This will yeah. be my thing. Yeah. So it's like, he's just going right back to where yeah. it is. But I think even in the beginning of the movie, he does, I actually think he has the idea about what he wants to do, not like murder a bunch of people, but what he wants to do from the moment he starts, because when he's saying he wants to be a cabbie, he is saying some subtle things that, that should give you hints as to like, what's going on with him mentally. He's like, mm. yeah, 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 I need a job all night. I, you know, I don't, I don't sleep. I need, I need, I need something to keep me occupied at night mm. that's not a good thing oh yeah he's it, that's not a positive trying thing. to keep his hands busy yeah, yeah. uh oh. the fact that he feels like he needs to keep his hands busy like that's not a good thing that's not a positive thing and he and he says anytime anywhere anytime anywhere i'll, d- I'll take the mm. cab anytime anywhere uh and then he, throughout the rest of the movie he continues to sort of like hammer that point home that like he'll go anywhere in new york why will he go anywhere in new york because he is trying to be, so he's trying to keep a watchful eye. Oh yeah, over yeah. all of this. What I he think it's a mix of that garbage, like nothing to lose, mixed with above everybody. Right. You know, he kind of has that. He's right. like Batman, but uh, but not that really that like makes Batman. me think that it wa- it wasn't so much an innocent, just like yeah, this will be good. I'll get a cab. I'll do this will be a way to move forward. I think he knew right away, like no, getting a cab is a way that I can make enough money to live, but keep an eye on the. Trash. Oh yeah, it's therapeutic for him. I think. The, yeah, absolutely. He's a. Uh, he's definitely I don't know about therapeutic, though. I don't know. No, I mean, in terms of, I think his his I think anger it fuels his rage. It but does, it, but I think that's that. fueled by a little bit of fear. Yeah, and I, I think he's a little bit afraid of the city, a little bit intimidated, even though he's seen some shit. Yeah, and so it's almost like like little guy syndrome. You know, yeah, when, you, yeah. when you meet a guy who's little, and they're usually a tough guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He almost has that on an emotional level where he's. He's not a tough guy. I mean, right. heck, the whole you looking at me, looking at me, yeah, that's yeah, him yeah. trying on the tough guy's skin right. and it's it's ridiculous to us, but you know, when you look at the the classic uh, you know, vigilante killers and assassins, they're always some fucking weirdo who's not some beefed up, you know, trained murderer. It's yeah, just some yeah. you know, loose screw. Yeah. And um but I mean, I I I would definitely say that the Betsy sequence at the end is a dream that the way I accept like it. such a fantasy. But I think before that is... is uh, Yeah, yeah. I, you know, mean, I think he is in the cab at the end. I don't think she is. Right, I think right, he's right. having that in his head. Yeah. And so, you know, he is back where he started. I do buy the heroism thing. That I that I buy mm. um, to some extent. It, it's weird. I, I, I would love to see the conversation of how they explain, like, well, what were you doing here in the yeah, first place? Yeah, why, why did you have three guns strapped to your body and a yeah. knife strapped to your ankle? And look at that mohawk. Yeah. You know, but at the same time... You know, that if guy's he just says, whole hand. you know, oh yeah, that and that was that was great because this is a movie that um, both you and I have seen some fucked up shit on movies, yeah. and both of us had the most audible reaction. Oh yeah, uh, there's a scene where he storms the 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 whorehouse at the end, yep. and the I guess the the doorman yep. walks up and he puts his hand up, but he just blows his hand to pieces with the gun, and it explodes. It's like hot dog meat. It just. Yeah, and uh, everybody in the room let out a whoa, oh, 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 shit, you know, 
Well, that we was were, wild. We were we were talking before the before we started recording. You know, one of the the if anybody knows any trivia about Taxi Driver, one of the one of the famous pieces of trivia is that that particular scene, the shootout at the end, uh, Scorsese had to desaturate the colors a lot so that the blood was a little bit washed out because mm. they were going to give it an X rating. Otherwise, that was how he got an R rating without having to make a cut. Uh, and you can actually, I was paying attention. You can literally see the color of the entire movie oh, yeah. change. It switches on a single cut. Yeah. There's no fade or anything. Yeah. Uh, w- which is interesting. Uh, but the... Oh, what the fuck was I going to say about this? Oh, the, the hyper-violence of it. I was saying before, like, I knew I had seen the movie, and, and as I was reading about it today, everybody kept talking about how hyper-violent it is. And I was like, I don't remember it being... Like, for one thing, I know there's only one scene of violence. Yeah, there's there's two scenes of violence. Yeah. The, the robbery and the, the oh, thing right, at right. the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but the even the robbery is nothing. Although I, I am grossed out by people getting shot in the face. Yes, me too. Because I think about their teeth getting hit yeah, by the yeah, bullets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is some gross stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that also says something about uh, the the concept of a movie movie yeah. is that I can show a movie to a group of people that are supposed to rate its content and they go, oh, that's too much. You alter the colors just a little bit and they go, that's fine. Yeah. And what's weird is that that is that's one of the problems with the MPAA is that there's no strict guidelines. Yes. It's just how do you feel at that moment? What's yeah. going to pass that person at that moment? And that is that little tweak of color is just enough for one person's mind to change from, uh, we shouldn't let anyone see this too. Okay, you know, it's yeah, we yeah. can put this in the theaters. But what's interesting that we were talking about is I was like, you know, I don't remember it being that violent uh, because it only has that one scene of violence and I didn't remember it being that particularly violent. And, and the reason I was thinking that is because we have PG-13 movies now that are nonstop violence from oh, the moment We have moment television shows that are nonstop violence, yeah. yeah. Until it ends. It's just constant violence. Now, it's not always bloody. That's one of the things that you can get away with with the MPAA. No blood, you're fine. Mm. Uh, and no, no gross and, and awful boobies. Right. Can't have boobies in our movies. <laughs> That's like Booby the one thing movies. that that like changes it. It's like, oh, we're gonna we're Can gonna we rip this guy's head off. <laughs> I like to bo- booby movie. <laughs> I like to booby movie, and that'll be the one that blows up. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Uh, oh, we should make a booby movie theme and just drop it into the middle of these yeah. episodes. It'll, there'll be one minute podcasts inside of this podcast. <laughs> I love it. I, I like to booby movie, and we'll just talk about whatever porn we watched this week. Uh, the but the what's interesting is the the scene itself was hyper violent. Like, even in this world today where we are bombarded with violence in our television and our movies, this one five-minute sequence still felt viscerally very violent and very difficult to watch. And it felt real. I think that's what got me. Like, any of the gruesomeness in it wasn't like... You know, it wasn't like people's heads exploding and right. stuff. It looked like real bullet hands hits. Exploded. Yeah, people's hands. But I mean, if you get shot in the hand at two feet away, yeah. your hand's going to explode. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, when he gets shot in the shoulder, yeah. and it, it looks real. Uh, when the guy got shot in the face at the at the uh, uh, Quickie Mart kind of place, yeah. it looked real. And that, to me, Even is more gruesome. when he takes a bullet in the neck. Oh, yeah. He grazes him and rips him open. Exactly. And it's, like, it's not gruesome in the sense that it's not what I would expect to see in a movie today, where it's actually like, you see like tons of blood and flecks of skin and all that kind of stuff come off. Mm. It's literally just like a perforation in his neck, but that is somehow way more disgusting. It looks painful. Because it looks painful and it seems very real. Mm-hmm. Very physical. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that I, I, it really blew my mind how visceral that scene was to me, considering all of the violence I have grown up with in mm. media. Um. Uh, again, that's just that it it that is more evidence of of how much of a movie movie this is. How effective his filmmaking is in that five minute sequence for it to to this day forty years later after so 
so much more technically speaking like much more violence much more graphic violence has occurred on film that that still feels so visceral still hits oh yeah it feels real. It feels painful. Yeah. And I think because we're so bombarded with violence, mm-hmm. I mean, there's movies that I go to strictly because I want to see violence. Yeah. And a lot of times because of that, violence has has, car- has become like a cartoon a little mm-hmm. bit. Fuck, even like Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. The end of that movie is hyper-violent, oh, yeah. but it's a cartoonish violence. And so you're sitting there, you're like, ooh, that's rough, ooh, that's rough, but you're never like, ooh. Right, right. You know, right. and anymore, anytime a death affects me in a movie... Um, it's because it's off screen or, you know, they'll cut away and you hear the gunshot and you're Mm -hmm. like, Ooh, you know, or just something like that. So you don't often see realistically portrayed and just in the lens violence like this, you know, Uh, for it to be effective to me anymore, it's got to have emotional resonance and it's got to happen off screen. Otherwise it's just, Oh, explosions of blood. Sweet. So for this to ride that middle line and do so, so effectively is what I think makes it so effective now. And I'll tell you, you don't often see that. I agree. So, like, something that stuck with me was when he shoots the one guy in the head. Mm. It's like the last guy he kills. He shoots him in the head, and the guy like falls against a wall, and you can see like his brain and and the blood like splattered against the wall. The camera holds that shot for like two minutes after that guy dies. You never see that in movies. They are so quick to, even if they are going to graphically show someone being shot, they are so quick to cut away from it and show you something else so that you don't have to live with that like actual, you don't have to deal with what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to live with it. It, it. it takes it away from you just as quickly as it gives it to you. He just let that camera sit for like two full minutes with this you disgusting could smell that portrayal room. of a dead body. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it it was really intense. And uh, actually, that's a phenomenal shot, too, because it starts there, and then we get the shot from overhead. Yeah. That gives you the layout of the apartment. Oh, yeah. It gives you the geography of the cops are now there. It tells you everything, and it goes all the way outside yep. the building. pulls. And I think there's a cut in there. And then when it there pulls out there. onto the streets and it has, you know, there's crowds amassing yep. in the street as to what, what the fuck just happened. Yeah. But it, it, you sit there, and you bask in it, and you feel it. Have you ever seen Funny Games? No, I haven't. Neither version. Um, they're both. I mean, they're both the they're same writer the same, director. Right? Yeah. It's just ones in English. Ones. Yeah. I, I I have them both. They're both very worth watching. Yeah. Um. Uh. I don't know. I think his first name is Michelle or M- Michael, but it's uh, Michelle Haneke. Uh-huh. Um. Awesome. I, I've never seen a movie of his that I didn't like. Piano Teacher will rock your world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Vitrano's all-time favorite movie, Piano Teacher. And um, I don't even know what that is. It's awesome. Yeah. But he is one of the things about about his movies is that they're very much like Scorsese in the violent sense. Yeah. Where they'll linger like that. Yeah. Where it'll seem real. I, I think of uh, The Departed when they shoot the guy mm-hmm. in the knee. Yeah. And they play it for humor. Where he's like, oh, you're supposed to go into shock, but it really hurts. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know. And so he's you know, but it's real. It feels like a real thing. It's not just. And um, but yeah, Funny Games has one of the. It's about ten minutes of lingering on a dead person whose brains were just blown out and someone who cares for that dead person Ooh. sharing the same scene silently for like 10 minutes it is the most brutal thing you Ugh. will ever watch and it is very reminiscent of that shot in yeah, Taxi yeah. Driver uh, so uh, one of the other things I want to talk about quick is the score the score oh, is yeah. just like fucking fantastic mm-hmm. uh, it actually sets the mood in certain scenes in very strange ways. Like there were certain times where I was like, I almost feel like this music conflicts with what we're seeing. Well, I think it's but supposed it to doesn't. show the glamour of New York a little bit. Yeah. Because even even though it was a shithole in the 70s, there's still a glamour to it. Yeah. You know, there's a certain glamour to it, and that's where that like kind of jazzy, uh, trumpet-based uh, 
you know, just jazz club music was. But then when there's more militant scenes, and I use the word militant yeah. intentionally, it has the drum core sound yes. to the background, and it's a little more aggressive, and it actually sounds like the music out of like a cop drama. Mm-hmm. It sounds like something out of Dragnet. Yeah. And so it plays both of those cards at the same time, and it, it left me like kind of unsettled because it's it's it fits the scene but it's dishonest to yeah. the scene cuz you don't know what's going to happen next right. and that that makes it good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The music fits the scene but it doesn't try to clue you into anything that's about right. to it's happen. Right, like guiding you through it. Exactly. Yeah. So many scores nowadays are so fucking busy mm-hmm. that it's just pa 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 and there's there's never a point without music. Like uh the later saw movies yeah. just have this constant churning the whole time <laughs> and by the end of the movie you just feel like sick yeah. but not because the art is good it's just because they're bombarding you physically with noise and you're just (laughs) like oh and it's so busy and so active that it actually takes you out of the movie whereas this you didn't feel like you were listening to the music at all it was just part of the experience yeah but it didn't it didn't give away any any clues or anything you know when when it changed it changed on a dime without any hints from the music it's awesome yeah i was i was very impressed with the music um I don't know what what else you got. Any, I want to other... talk about Jodie Foster. Yeah. Um. One of the craziest things watching this movie nowadays, uh, like we said before with De Niro, is just I have these images of people in my head. So when I see them forty years ago, it's you know it's different. These are kids. I mean, she's literally a child in this movie. Yes. I'm older now than De Niro is in this movie. Yes. And it's it's weird to see, but Jodie Foster was thirteen. She was nominated for an Oscar. I think she might have won. She may have. I'm not sure. I think she won. Well, either way, she inspired someone to to try and murder a president for. Her. Yeah. But this is a this is a a role that a 13 year old shouldn't be able to handle. Yes. Um. There's a lot of creepy stuff that I imagine, and I think now, like, I have a niece who's eight, so like every time I see a child in a movie, that's who I think of. Yeah. So I'm trying to add a couple years to her and make her 13 and try to explain to her acting in the scene where she's going to embrace Harvey yeah, yeah, Keitel yeah. while he's being a creep to her. Yeah. Telling her he's going to give her drugs and take care of her and he needs her, but he wants her to need him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that I feel like as a filmmaker, when you're working with your actors, that would be so difficult to explain to a 13-year-old like how to play this and how to understand it without making it a total creep fest. Yeah. And you know, and even just outside of the movie having your actress be comfortable in something that's really weird for someone who's 13. But Jodie Foster handles it with grace. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this about Jodie Foster. She's actually a genius. <laughs> she's high-ranking in Mensa. Okay. She's actually a literal yeah. IQ genius. Yeah. And so watching this movie, it's clear as day that as a 13-year-old, she could have that with a more adult mentality yeah. and carry it with a weight where nowadays it would be such a fine line to walk where you got to not sexualize this character because right. it's wrong, right. but you have to sexualize this character because it is a sexualized character. Yeah. And by its nature, I feel like that. I can't think of a young actress that could handle that today, right. outside of like a Dakota Fanning, you know. Right, right, right. But uh, Jodie Foster nailed it. Oh, she killed it. And that is, you know, kudos to the actors around her and the script. But the confidence and and the damage that she shows on her face is something that I could never have understood at thirteen, let mm-hmm. alone portrayed, let alone at an Oscar level performance. It was phenomenal. Uh, I was reading they had trouble casting that role, uh, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense. Uh, that they they had tried a couple of different people, uh, and I think in one situation, like the parents got cold feet and pulled the kid out, mm-hmm. and another one they they couldn't. 
some somebody got involved that wouldn't let them or something. And so they ended up, because I think they were going to go with like an unknown to some extent, but then they cast Jodie Foster because she had been in some other things before and they knew like, oh, she's like a talented young actress. Like mm. she might, she might actually be able to pull this off and be considered like, okay to do that. Uh, and then, but apparently there were still concerns then that obviously one of the, the scenes she has to be in is the hyper violent last scene. She's oh, a very significant part of it. Uh, and the story that Scorsese tells is the way they handled that was instead of like, uh, you know, like pulling her off the set and then just getting her on for just the scene she needed to be in or whatever, they explained to her very technically exactly what they were doing, mm. how all the effects were going to work, how they were going to blow a guy's hand apart, how it was going to look like a guy got shot through the neck. They just very technically explained every single thing that was happening. And she was like fascinated by that, but then also understood it's all fake. It's all a movie. It's oh, this yeah, is exactly yeah. how it's going to work. This is why we're doing this. This is how we're going to do this. And that I would imagine is how she was actually able to give her performance like that is they just treated her like an adult and, and mm. just said like, look, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. This is why we're doing it. These are the motivations for what you're doing as a character. Uh, I, so I would imagine it's a combination of, yes, her being like a, a very smart and adept young woman, uh, but also them handling her like an adult uh, Absolutely. in that situation. And I think that's that's key to her character is being very adult-like. Yes. Because on the surface, she looks like a child. She is a child. Right. And so she has to act very adult, but also act vulnerable like a yes. child who is also putting on a skin yep. and just saying, no, I'm tough. I'm fine. Of I got course. this. I don't need my fucking parents. And uh, that uh, that to me is impossible to, mm-hmm. to even fathom getting someone to do that, let alone a young a kid. Right. And so all the pieces came together perfectly, and and the, yeah, that's a deserved Oscar. Oh my god! Yeah, she was great. Uh, Harvey Keitel. It's like there's so many like <laughs> he was amazing. Yeah. And that's another thing because like when you see old man actors now, I picture short, stout, gray hair, yep. uh, priest fighting vampires, Harvey Keitel. Yep. And I forget about bad Lieutenant Harvey Keitel yes. or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, De Niro especially is like really weird to see in this movie. He is so young and thin. Like that is the thing that blew my mind about it is how thin he actually is. Mm. Cause he's such like a stocky guy now. Oh yeah. He's, he looks like my dad. Yeah. And he looks like, you know, you or me in this one. It's, yeah, it's yeah. weird. It's so strange. Uh, oh, you know what? I'll relate the story. Cause I, I said this to you on the way up, um, a legendary story about, uh, Robert De Niro. He was working with a seventies black exploitation director. I don't know his name. Yeah. I really don't know much about him, but he, he passed away recently. So I was reading, you know, articles about his life and he told a story of working with De Niro and said, he's the greatest actor I ever worked with. An example was we were at a bar and I made a bet with him. It's like 50 bucks says, you can't drink this glass of vodka. A glass of vodka. You can't pound this and then act sober. Yeah. And apparently it was easy task for yeah, De Niro. Yeah, yeah. He pounded it and just acted sober. That's because, crazy. Because, you know, that's De Niro. That's uh, what he does. One of the crazy stories I read about this is he was filming a movie called 1900 that he was in at the same time that this was filming. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, not that this was filming, that they were prepping this to shoot. Uh, and so he was shooting, uh, 1900 in Rome and whenever he had off days, he would fly all the way back to New York, rent a cab and drive around New York city in a cab. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. But that's, that's what it takes. That's, that's how you become great. That's Daniel Day Lewis, man. That's how you do it. You do do it. He uh he presented for best actor at the Oscars. See? So like to see him shaking Matthew McConaughey's hand is just like, oh, Give me some of what you guys got. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Let's give me a taste. I want, I want a little bit of this. But uh. 
any final thoughts on Taxi Driver? I'm trying to think. I picked up my phone to look something up, and now I forget what I was going to look up. Yeah. Um, honestly, I it's I'm ashamed that it's taken me this long yeah. to see it, and I'm stunned at how different it was than what I had in my head, mm-hmm. and how much I prefer what it was as opposed yeah, yeah. to what I had in my head. Um, the way that it's been, uh, you know, the same way that you see Scarface shirts everywhere, yeah. and it's like, have these people even seen Scarface? It's not terribly good, but. Uh, you know, it, I actually I find it funny that that there's a very big uh, uh, urban culture for Scarface yes. when Scarface was not cool with urban culture. Right, like yeah, he would have yeah. hated it. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, that's great. Um, it, when I when I picture Taxi Driver, I picture you know him with the gun in a poster. I picture yeah. Are you talking to me you talk, as tough guy shit. Yeah. And it's not. It's no. this weird story of a profoundly damaged man trying to find meaning and. Either succeeding or failing, we don't know. Right, yeah. But it is definitely a uh, you know a, a, a cinematic soulmate to uh, King of Comedy. Oh, yeah. Another Scorsese thing, because that's the same kind of thing. You're seeing this guy who has an idea of what he wants to do, maybe, but he's just so damaged, but he's also so obsessed. Mm-hmm. And then once again, an ambiguous ending, yeah. wondering if it was all for naught. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I definitely, uh, I really respect Martin Scorsese. He's, He's one of those people that consistently pumps out good shit. Yeah. I can't think of a movie of his that I've seen that I haven't at least loved. Oh, uh, r- real quick, let's do this before we before we walk out on this movie. Is is some of the camera moves that I loved because it's one of my okay. favorite things about Scorsese movies is he just uses the camera in really interesting ways. There's a shot very early in the movie in the garage when he first uh, when he's first getting his cab. Oh, yeah. And, it gives uh, you a tour of the whole place. gives you a tour of the whole mm. place in one tracking shot, but it's this beautiful circular tracking shot that actually moves away from Travis and then reconnects with Travis on the back end, uh, which I, th- I thought was great. It was just a really beautiful shot. Mm. Uh, and then the other one that I that I think we both really enjoyed was, the, was actually a very similar shot, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, when he is... First in the whorehouse with Jodie Foster, not during the shootout, but the first time he meets mm. her in there, uh, and she basically offers herself up to him, and he realizes that that's what she's doing, and he gets up out of the chair, and he's like, "No, no, no! Why are you doing this?" And he like walks around in a circle. Oh but yeah, the camera holds real tight on his face while he makes that circle. It's actually almost. It looks out. a lot like you know the the her uh, face where yeah. they're you know they're spinning in a circle yes, yes. of love, but it's not. It's just his menacing face, and it gives you a, a, a blurry tour of the apartment. Yeah. And that shot actually is followed by a shot that really got me when she puts the moves on him. There's a static shot over her shoulder of his face, and he kind of like steps up and rushes towards the camera a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. And it goes off focus, and he gets a little too close to the camera before it cuts. So it actually technically should have cut earlier yeah but it works perfect there yeah. because it's a rough break moment for his character where you know he starts to realize maybe i'm not making any ground with, right, this, with right. this girl you know maybe i'm not gonna save her yeah and it's wild um, another camera uh shot that i really loved was when they first entered the the whorehouse um the camera follows him down the hallway and it's very clear that the camera is being carried by a walking person mm-hmm. because it's it's walking with them mm-hmm. and uh it's the only time that it's not really a steady camera mm-hmm. and then it gets to the steps and the action continues up the steps but the person stops walking and just moves it up oh. so the scene actually moves away from the cameraman but he doesn't go up the steps so it goes from you know almost like you're there to no it's a movie and just sit back and watch yeah, it. Yeah. it it was a cool um, I like when directors are active but not present. Yes. Um, if I wasn't looking for these things specifically, it would feel 
like I didn't see anything at all. Right. And that's beautiful. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and you see that a lot. That's uh, like I always say, like with with young Aronofsky and young David Fincher, it was all flash and they mm-hmm. were good. Now their movies are more muted with touches of that. Yeah. Whereas Scorsese, this almost felt like a more adult movie. I agree. Because it was it was more muted with his stamp on it. Whereas Wolf of Wall Street was like very very alive and active i feel like all of his movies over the last five or ten years have been like extremely sort of loud maybe is the way yeah they're big they're they're almost festive uh, one of the things I love about Casino that, that everybody forgets is that it's the whole thing is narrated by Joe Pesci, yeah. who we find out is narrating from beyond the grave. Right, right. So it is like a dream sequence. Right. And so I don't know if it's something with age or just with the people he's working with or just the fact that something like Wolf of Wall Street is a more raucous story. Sure. You know, it, it's just, it's interesting to see a director have such a strong stamp, but such a malleable style. Yes. It's it's brilliant. He's yeah. he's one of the best. At a, he better not fucking die or anything. <laughs> we need at least a decade of movies out of him yeah yeah uh, he says uh, he says he'll keep making them for dicaprio oh right on i, I heard this year that he'll he, get that oscar he's yet been talking about wanting to retire for years mm. uh and he credits he solely credits leonardo dicaprio with the fact that he's still making movies dicaprio is awesome yeah and i firmly believe that his great role is, is yet has come. yet to happen I agree. when he's when he's like an old man when he's st- when people start to realize he's like a paul newman of our generation yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way they're going to be like, oh, this 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 kid was good. Yeah. And it all started with, Arnie, <laughs> he could have drowned it. I think it started with Growing Pains, my friend. Growing Pains. Ooh, yes. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. It started with um, Ghoulies. It started with Ghoulies. Ghoulies? I don't ghoulies. even know what Ghoulies is. It is a horror movie with a very young DiCaprio in it. Ghoulies. 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 I believe it's Ghoulies. It's it's one of those those movies. It's Ghoulies or, no, it's not Troll. I like think it's Ghoulies. Like it's Critters. It's Critters. Critters is the one. I do know That's what Critters is. Ghoulies is the, the was the cheap ones, one. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Ghoulies was the was the the ripoff of the, the cheap ripoff of Critters, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if there ever was one. But um, I I want to bring this up. So the new thing we're trying to do is negative reviews. Yes, please do. I found one negative review of Taxi yeah. Driver, and it says uh, it, it goes to uh, Richard Schickel from Time Magazine. This is February nineteen seventy six. What a dickle! Here we go. Yeah, Taxi Driver goes disastrously wrong when it tries to turn slice-of-life realism into full-scale melodrama. At first, it is interesting and funny when Travis becomes obsessed with a cool socialite who is a campaign worker for a too-slick, too-vacuous presidential candidate. The relationship begins with his following her around at a distance, proceeds to his awkward efforts to date her, ends when he takes her to a skin flick. It makes a nice little essay in the confusions of a cross-cultural courtship. However, Travis's failure as presented is more farcical than tragic, and it never adequately explains his becoming a killer. He acquires a small arsenal of guns and Start stalking his lady's candidate. I feel like you missed the point a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would imagine so because I think it's clear right from the get-go there's something wrong with Travis. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why anyone would watch Taxi Driver and go, oh, this is a nice little slice of life piece about a cab driver in New York. Yeah. it's. Uh, he definitely missed the point. It's... Um, wait, and I have a... Uh... Oh, no, I thought I... I... Eh. I can't get a good link. Apparently, <laughs> apparently the, the reviewer has an apology. Uh, and all I have is the line, I was in a bad place when I wrote that. <laughs> 
Sounds to me like he could use a little uh, a little Travis Bickle. I was going to say the the to be in a bad to be in a bad place while watching Taxi Driver for you to then give it a negative review says to me you were probably in a pretty good place actually. Yeah, in such a real. good place you couldn't really figure it out. Hey, you're Time Magazine's movie editor. You get a little big and then you realize no, you're wrong. Yeah, that's a universally loved movie. Yes, uh, and I and I now know why. I feel like it, oh, a piece of the yeah. puzzle has been put together. Yeah. It's uh, it's something that that as a movie buff has been nagging at me yeah i i highly recommend if you've listened to this without watching that movie sh- shame on you yeah <laughs> uh go watch it right now find it and watch it it's it's uh well worth your time and i and i can tell you i'm gonna watch it again very soon oh yeah absolutely. it's very watchable oh super watchable mm. actually even at its length it's almost two hours long but it doesn't feel, no, it doesn't uh, feel like that at uh, all. there's no fat on it really mm. uh it moves along very nicely um all right i think that'll do it for yeah uh, for that works for me driver. See let's, that uh, shit. Let's get out of here. Oh, and if and you he, like Taxi Driver, you should check out After Hours. That's, yeah. that's a long That'll forgotten... That'll be recommend this episode? Um, no, I, I do have a recommend Go. this episode. Um, uh, it was Oscar week, and so I watched a movie that I did not want to watch and end up really enjoying. Um, Philomena. Mm. Philomena was good. I mean, I'm not going to say it's it's some masterpiece, but it's one that I've, I enjoyed watching by myself, but I'd feel comfortable taking my mom or my grandmother oh, wow. to. It's very funny. It's written by Steve Coogan, so you know oh, it's, it's cool. funny. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. But it, it, it's... The trailers, of course, are marketed towards the senior set, mm-hmm. so it, it, they play it like it's, you know, it's... Nana, come watch a movie. And then when you watch it, it's not that at all. Like it is that, but it yeah. doesn't it bucks all the cliches. It goes to some dark places, but it's it's tremendously funny. And um Judy Dench is great. Oh, I love Judy She's Dench. She's fantastic. Yeah. Dame Judy Dench. It's the female knight. <laughs> she was uh she was awesome and it's it's very funny. I, yeah. I very much enjoyed it and, and you might. It's light, it's cool, it's short. I uh, I watched Hot Rod this week, uh, which One is definitely something I can recommend. Uh, was that the first time you've seen it? No, I've seen oh, it okay. before. It's uh, the best movie ever. It's just so silly. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. it's perfectly silly. Uh, you know, don't uh, don't watch that movie expecting a great movie. Just sit down and and enjoy it for uh, how just ridiculous and absurd it is. It's That's very, very definitely fun. a movie movie in a way. Yeah, because that. I tried to describe gags from that to people. Like, try to ex- to describe cool beans oh, to I anybody. Know. Yeah, exactly. That exists. The only way to see that is if the movie shows you. Yes, you uh, I would agree that it's a movie, movie, but it's definitely, um, you know, it's uh, it's not a good. I I have so much trouble describing comedies because it's not a good movie. You know what I mean? It's like it doesn't tell a um, an interesting, compelling story. Oh, there's nothing to be gained way. from it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it is so fun. It's so worth seeing. And I will say. That although it has, you know, it's not a, a quote-unquote good movie, it doesn't have a lot to say to be gained for it. It does have one of my favorite comedic premises I think I've ever seen oh, in yeah. a movie because it's so absurd. Mm-hmm. The concept of Hot Rod is that, is he his stepson or his actual son? It's it's the stepson. That's why it's he a, likes the brother more. It's his stepson, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, is a, it, so it's about a, a man, not a boy. Yeah. A man. A man in his late 20s. A man in his late 20s. <laughs> who desperately needs to prove himself to his stepfather. And the way in which he hopes to accomplish this is to beat his stepfather in a fist fight of some kind. If he were to beat his stepfather in a fist fight, he would earn his respect. However, it turns out his stepfather is dying. So, he decides to perform a stunt to make enough money to save his stepfather from death in order to fist fight his stepfather so he can prove his worthiness to him the movie is literally about saving a man from death just so you can fight him and you know what i like about that 
you would think that the whole thing would be in the end he learns that he doesn't need to fight him. No. 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 He's got to fight they, him. They stay true to that He's entirely. Fight him. That's the premise. That's one of those movies that that I remember watching it and just being like I get like one of the things I hate about some comedy movies is when they start to have to get a plot in there. Right. It like slows down the jokes. They don't worry about it no. one bit. Nope. Um, honestly, it's just whatever. Like that plot is just a rather dense but whatever shell to just host a ridiculous amount of jokes. Oh, yeah. It's one of the few movies that I'd say that literally every motion and line contributes to some kind of a gag. Yes. Yep. There's there's no waste. Yeah. You know, and even though it's just throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks, most of it sticks. Yeah, it's, it's uh, just it's such a earnest. crazy premise. I yeah, think that's so funny. That is a fucking funny movie. Yeah, recommend. That is a funny movie. Uh, and a great soundtrack. Oh, indeed. Yeah. All right, you ready? Um, um, yeah. Should we plug? Oh, let's plug. Yeah, uh, you can find. I am finally uh, uh, tweeting on the reg again. So find me on Twitter at Philadelphia. It's with an F. Uh, you can find our show on Twitter. It's I like two movie. The number two, not the word two. The number two. I like two movie. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash I like two movie. Uh, check us out on iTunes. Leave us a review. Uh, especially uh, any comments about the show are very helpful in the in the rating system there. And also. Uh, Give us your recommendations. We'd love to. Uh, we'd love to do a movie, movie that you want to hear us talk about. Which, by the way, uh, uh, somebody requested we do a Mel Brooks movie. Okay, I would love to which do a Mel I Brooks would movie. Love to do. We should do Young Frankenstein. That's uh, that was exactly the movie that was recommended. Boom, beautiful. Um, okay, so I have. Um, I don't know if this is your kind of thing, but if you go to the Twisted World Convention, I will be performing a midnight show of comedy with the likes of Jimmy Viola and Short Stack and Noah Houlihan. And I don't know I did one of these festivals before, and it's a bunch of steampunk maniacs doing <laughs> weird erotic things. And I'm going to tell them jokes, and it's going to be awesome. So uh, come check that out. It's in Valley Forge. Look up Twisted World. You can check out my blog at thedanscully.tumblr.com, my uh, Twitter at Dan Scully. And um, I think that is everything oh and most importantly happy birthday to uh oh, to garrett you. it's thank garrett's birthday it. yeah, today yeah and so uh I'm, I'm happy that you've chosen to spend it doing movie movie yeah me it's, too it's a beautiful thing yes. so happy birthday my thank friend you, thank you uh actually i should plug really quick because this will be out before then uh come to the world cafe if you're in the philadelphia oh, yeah. area come to the world cafe on march 15th for the uh comedy showcase that i host it's called all bets are off it's upstairs it's a, a 9 p.m show it's it always up. awesome. You should you should yeah, not Dan miss it. Dan has been on it many times. It's yes. Really <laughs> All but one, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Good. It was time to move on. <laughs> it's Rick now, right? Rick's yeah, the new Rick's, Rick's the new serial guy. New awesome. Yeah. Good for him. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, so for this week. I like to movie movie. I like to movie movie. We all know that you like to movie you movie. Do. And, and we, we like, like to movie. movie. We nailed it. That might have been the best one we've ever done. We nailed <laughs> That's it. Good.